Now, we are in the book of Ephesians. If you have a Bible or if you have a Bible app, you can open up to the first chapter. We are still in the first chapter. We'll be in there for a few more weeks. And I'm so appreciative of Pastor Sam leading us in our study last week, and it was a great thing to talk about being in Christ. Julie and I were at a pastor's conference in North Carolina. The Solomon Foundation, a church lending institution, sponsored it, covered most of the expenses for it. What was so amazing about this event is the speakers were board members of some of the largest Christian churches in our nation. You may not realize it because we don't talk about it much here, but we are part of a fellowship of churches. Most of them have the name Christian Church attached to them, but they're a, a fellowship of churches. We don't have a hierarchy. There are no denominational ties. It's an affiliation of churches that are like-minded. And some of these churches are just doing phenomenal ministry. Several of them are, are over eight, 9,000. In fact, one of them was 28,000 um, members in their church. And just sharing with us the wisdom and the experiences that they've had, the tough times, the pain that they've experienced was, was such an inspiration and encouragement to us. But also at this conference were several pastors of the African-American Churches of Christ. Now, there are a group of churches called Churches of Christ that are non-instrumental. They don't use musical instruments in their church services. But there are a number of them that are led by African-American pastors. And they have not felt a lot of support. And so Solomon Foundation has come along. They invited these pastors. About half the group were African-American pastors. And just the spirit there of us being able to come together and understand one another and know that we are there in this journey together. It doesn't matter what size of church you are. We are in this call together. It was such a beautiful experience that, that most in that room felt this was groundbreaking. Because if you look back through history, those leading the charge for racial equality and reconciliation in our culture were the churches. It rose up through pastors and church people. And the church ought to be the most reconciling place upon the planet. And I'm so grateful to be part of a church that I believe is like that. We don't look at people as colors of skin. We acknowledge that there are are differences in backgrounds. And and it doesn't matter if you're young or old or or black or white or rich or poor. We are one in Christ, right? There's a unity. In fact, the book of Ephesians talks quite a bit about this subject of being unified in Christ. As we looked at verses 3 through 14, this great prayer of Paul's, he, he says that we are bound together. Because it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your station of life is. We all are equally cursed through sin. We are equally in need of redemption. And we are equally blessed by the same Father who adopts us into his family, by the same Son who gave his life for all of us, and the same Spirit who dwells within each one of us. We find that unity in Christ. And God has done all that through Jesus. And today we're actually going to go beyond that to look at what happens when we're in Christ. Being in Christ ought to be the greatest place for spiritual growth. Uh, At our house, we have a whole row of trees that I planted about eight or nine years ago, little pine trees. And when I planted them, they were about this big. Today, there's some of those trees that are this big. And some of them are this big. And I don't understand it. (laughs) Same, Same batch of trees same soil, they've gotten the same rain, and some are this tall and some are this tall. And they're just responding to where they've been planted differently. And I think that's so true of believers. I've met believers who have shot up in their growth, brand new Christians, so hungry and passionate about the Lord, hungry for the Scriptures, hungry to serve God, and they just shoot up in their growth. And I've known people who've known the Lord for decades who are spiritual infants. They just are in the same place they seem they've always been. They don't seem to be growing. My question for you today is, are you growing? We were made to grow. 
God saved us so that we would grow. And this passage we're going to look at today from, from Ephesians chapter 1, this, this prelude to Paul's prayer, we're going to discover that there's a reason that we need to grow. We're going to find out that there's a direction in which to grow, and we're going to find out that there's a key support for our growth. So before we actually do that, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Father, speak to us through your word. Thank you that these ancient words have power and that Paul wasn't randomly writing these things, but was your divine instrument to write things that were not only relevant to the Ephesian church nearly 2,000 years ago, but speak profoundly to us today. So may we hear your voice wherever we've come from, Father. May we hear your voice in our place of need today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm just going to read two verses, verses 15 and 16. For this reason, Paul says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, as you've been learning, we're going through this really slow. We're going to be in Ephesians a long time because we want to soak up all that God's saying here. And he's saying some huge things in just these two verses. First, he gives the reason for our growth. We have been planted in Christ. He starts out saying, for this reason. And the reason isn't what follows because you've been living out your faith. The reason is actually looking backwards. It's it's like, therefore, therefore, all these things that God has done for us, for this reason, here's what needs to happen. For this reason, what's the reason? He goes back to the praise that he'd given to God. Remember, he starts off with these these, uh, 11, 12 verses that are all about praise. Paul praises God for the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit, the whole Trinity working to redeem us, to, to seal us, to give us this great inheritance so that we can live for his glory, not our glory. And he says because of this, for this reason, you need to go beyond. You need to go forward in your spiritual journey. Paul is reflecting back. And by the way, it is very, very good practice to begin your prayers with praise. Look at what God's already done for you. Start there before you bring to God your request. And so Paul does that. He looks back at what God has done. I think one of our problems is we oftentimes see salvation through this lens. We see it as our old life that culminates in this experience of salvation, which means we're born again. And so we look at being born again as the pinnacle, as the peak of our spiritual journey. It's like we start here, the old life, we, we, we peak right here, we're born again. But God looks at us a little bit differently. God says you've been born again, and, and I want you to grow to maturity. I want you to grow up in your faith. I want you to get to this place. See, we may think, think hey, I'm saved, that's, that's the end, I've, I've reached it, that's all God has for me. No, 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 that's just the beginning. It's kind of like getting married, you don't say, hey, I've got it. I got that gal, got that guy, we're done. No, this is just the beginning of the new journey. And so we've been planted in Christ so that we would grow. We are blessed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, through, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Now, I have good news for you today. And I didn't get it through a tweet. And it, wasn't, it has nothing to do with your taxes, nothing to do with your health care plan, has nothing to do with your bank statement. But I'm here to, hear, here to tell you today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are incredibly rich. You are rich. 
God has given you so much, so much that he has given you. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he has given us divine power and everything we need for a godly life, everything we need, everything we need, everything, everything we need, he's been given, he's given it to us already. It's not like he's going to give it to us down the road. He's already given it to us. You and I are rich. And yet you may say, pastor, I just don't feel rich. I don't feel rich. You might be rich, but I'm not rich. Well, then you've never read the will. You've never read the will that says what you have in Christ. Because this tells us the riches that have been given to us. Now, they aren't tangible riches that will rust and and be eaten by moths or get stolen by someone. They are eternal, lasting riches. Everything we need in order to live a godly life. We don't need to acquire more. We just need to access more of what's already been given. There have been a couple times where I've been out and found a book that I said, man, I, I, really, I really heard good things about that book. I think I need that book. I'd like to read that book sometime. So I'll buy that book, come back to my office, look for the appropriate spot on my bookshelf, and lo and behold, I already have that book. <laughs> the problem is I've never accessed that book. I didn't know what I already had. And I think so often in our Christian lives, we don't know what we already have. We're busy asking God, God, would you do this for me? God, would you do this for me? God, would you provide this for me? And God says, I I've already given you everything you need. Everything. I've already given it to you. The Apostle Paul used to think his riches were his pedigree and his educational degrees. And we read about it in in Philippians chapter 3 where he recounts all these things that he says he once thought made him wealthy, made him spiritually wealthy. But then he says that all these things are like garbage. Compared to this, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he, and he says this relationship with the Lord is this new treasure that he has. But, but knowing isn't static. It's a growing relationship. I want to know him. And so there's more room to grow. And so Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Meaning, I don't have it yet. I'm trying to grab a hold of all the things that he grabbed a hold of me to have. God reached down, picked me up, as it songs, out of the dust, and he pointed me in a direction, says, all this is yours. And so I'm grabbing a hold of that. So it, all we have is there to access. Now, you look back in the Old Testament, and you see the Israelites given this incredible promise of a land, the promised land. And, and God told them that that is yours. They went into Canaan and says, that's your land. But he says, but you have to do something. Joshua writes about it. Joshua chapter 1, verse 3. Joshua says to the, God's words to them, I will give you every place where you set your foot as I had promised Moses. In other words, get walking. Get out there and claim what I've already given you. Start walking around and see what I've given you. Access what I've already provided. And in the New Testament, we find that that when we enter into a relationship with Christ, we don't get a piece of land, we get a life, a life that's called an abundant life, an eternal life. But guess what? It has to be accessed. It has to be seized. It has to be embraced. Just because you are saved doesn't mean you're enjoying an abundant life. You have to open your arms to it. You have to get off your chair. You've got to get out there and, and access this abundant life he has to give. 
So all that is there because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are saved and blessed in order to grow. But what does that growth look like? Well, Paul defines it with two words. Evidence of growth is greater faith and greater love. He says, I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. Isn't it interesting that the things that he admires about the church are their faith and their love? Because when you hear people talk about, their, about churches today, they'll, they'll say things like, oh, we have this really big church, or, or we have an incredible coffee bar, or the youth ministry is fantastic, or the, or the worship, oh, is out of this world. Oh, that pastor, he's so good looking. Uh, I mean... <laughs> I know no one here says that, but, you know, Paul doesn't say, you know, I've, I've heard all those things. Sounds like a great church. He says, you know what I hear? I hear, about your, I hear about your faith. I mean, people are talking about it. They're talking about how you're stepping out in faith, how you're trusting the Lord. I'm, that's, that's being talked about. Your love for other people, that's being talked about, and the, the news is coming back to me. And, you know, as parents, we know this to be true. What gets recognized gets repeated. What Paul is doing, and he doesn't just do it here in Ephesians, he does it in Colossians. Listen to Colossians in the first chapter. He's writing to this church. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all of God's people. Sounds very similar, right? You will read his other letters in the New Testament. You will find very similar things to the church in Thessalonica, to the church in Philippi. Why? Because those are the things Paul had been teaching them to grow in. And now that he's seeing it, he says, way to go. Way to go. You're growing in the direction you need to be growing because not all growth is good. In fact, if you go to the doctor and he says, you have a growth, you just know it's not good. It's not good. Not all growth is good. There's some growth that can be dangerous. Growing in Bible knowledge. I hear a lot of people say, I want to grow to know the Bible more. That's a good thing. But you know what's bad? When, when, when it makes you arrogant. When it makes you think you're smarter than everybody else. Because, because it says that, that, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Our knowledge ought to cr- create a greater love within us. You know, be, obedience is a good thing. Growing to be more obedient is a good thing, unless you're putting confidence in your obedience and, again, becoming arrogant over it. Legalism is deadly. In fact, Paul writes to a church in Galatia, and a lot of what he writes is rebuking them because it's a Jewish audience, and, they're, and they're, while they're embracing Jesus, they're saying, yeah, but we've got to hold on to the traditions of the Jewish faith. The rituals, particularly the ritual of circumcision. And Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, you're, you're going off track here. You're putting confidence in the wrong thing because the truth is this. Galatians 5 says this. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He doesn't say that's an important thing. He says that's the only thing that counts. When you stand before God and, and, and God says, did you do what I asked you to do? And you go, well, God, I really didn't know. I, there's a lot of things I did. I, I, did I, I, I did a lot of things. I had great quiet times and, and I went to church every Sunday. I know, I know. But, but remember I told you the only thing that counts? Faith, expressing itself through love. How'd you do with that? How'd you do with that? Because that's what matters. Two great biblical words, faith and love. One deals with the vertical that's the faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and love for all of God's people. Now, what is faith? You may say it's believing in Jesus. That's a part of it, but it goes beyond that to trust, to confidence. Do you know the Bible says that the demons believe? They're not saved. 
fact, they shudder because they fail to surrender themselves to the one they believe in. See, Paul, Paul picks the word faith in the Lord Jesus. Do you know what Lord is? It's an authority figure. It's your master. It's the one you obey. If Jesus is your Lord, it means you do what he says. You do what he says. You have confidence in his word. You believe it's what's, it's what's best. Now, the man in the Bible that's given as the example of faithfulness is Abraham. And Paul writes in his letter to the Romans in the fourth chapter how Abraham epitomized faith. Listen to this. Here's the description. Abraham was this old guy in the Old Testament. God had promised him and his wife when they were in their 90s and just 100 years old that they were going to have a baby. This baby would be the, uh, the one through whom his offspring would come the Messiah who would bless all the nations on the earth. And here they are well beyond childbearing years. And yet they're told they're going to bear a child. So it says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. And then what I think is the best definition of faith being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Abraham had this faith that God, God told us we're going to have a baby. I believe that's true. Now, I was thinking about that, of how that had to play out. Because we, we, we think of Abraham and his journey going to this land he'd never knew before, but can you imagine how, how faith actually took place in the household? Hey, Sarah. God said, we're going to have this, this miracle baby. She goes, I know, I, I, I just, just, I'm just blown away by that. I know, but we have to do something <laughs> to cooperate with God to make this happen. Do you understand? <laughs> I mean, some of, you, some of you may have been here for a marriage seminar when, when Ted Cunningham was here. Ted's coming in a couple weeks. He came here with Gary Smalley. I remember Gary Smalley. He was close to 70 years old. He said, he said you know, Sometimes Norma, my wife, says, hey, babe, how about we go upstairs and make love? And, and he says, you know, I'm getting old. I can only do one of the two. <laughs> this is an act of faith. And, and when you go against common sense and you do things that culture says, that doesn't make sense. When you're a young person, you say, you know what? I'm not going to have sex with you until I get a ring on my finger. Because it's... Because my, my gift of sexuality is a gift I give to my husband or my wife. That's it. Culture says, you got to test drive before you buy the thing. Come on. You say, no, no. God says he blesses that. That's an act of faith. When you sacrifice money, possessions for someone, sometimes someone you don't even know, believing that God will, will bless that person through your gifts, that's an act of faith. That's an act of faith. When you forgive someone who's wronged you, culture says you have a right to have a grudge against that person, but God says, no, no, forgive the person that's hurt you. It's good for your own soul. You do it because you believe in the Lord Jesus, that that's what's best for you. When you sell your possessions, quit your job, and go to the mission field, that's an act of faith. And even though those things seem countercultural, Faith means I do it because I'm fully persuaded that God is able to do what he said. That is faith. Are you growing in faith? 
In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, I'll say it real bluntly. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I'm not your Lord if you're not doing what I say. And what I say sometimes is uncomfortable. What I say is countercultural. What I say may cost you, but trust me, it's the best thing for you. When we were back in North Carolina, we had the privilege to go to the Billy Graham Museum, or Billy Graham Library. And it's, it, it's a tribute to what God had done through this ministry of a humble Baptist preacher named Billy Graham. Now, Billy Graham uh, was preaching revival meetings for an organization called Youth for Christ. And then a bunch of churches in, in California said, hey, we, don't, we want you to come out and do this big revival meeting, this big crusade at the Coliseum. Thousands of people will be there. And, and a couple nights before Billy Graham was to preach to thousands in this Coliseum, the first of his many crusades, he had a crisis of faith. Someone had planted seeds in his head that the Bible really wasn't the word of God and really had no authority. And he went out in the woods and he put his Bible on a stump and he says, he said, God, he said, I accepted Jesus Christ by faith. I've never seen Jesus, but I believe he died for my sins and I've accepted him by faith and my life has been changed. And from this day forward, I am taking your word as truth and I will preach it by faith and trust that you will bring fruit from the words of this book. And I don't know if there's been another human being in the last century who's impacted more lives than Dr. Billy Graham. You know what's interesting is his ministry is now being led by his son, Franklin Graham. While Billy Graham has led thousands upon thousands to faith, Franklin Graham has weaved together love with it through Samaritan's Purse, through missions to help people in hurricane-ravished territories, through gifts like Operation Christmas Child. And faith and love work together. See, Jesus said that if he truly is Lord, you'll do what he commands. And he tells us in John 15, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. You cannot separate faith and love. We could go into just that, but someone says, I believe in God. Well, it ought to show in love because faith should express itself in love according to the scriptures. Now, if we're really going to love people well, we have to... We have to understand where they're coming from. We need to understand what their need is. Last week when we flew to North Carolina, we happened to be the, in the last seats of the plane that landed in, in North Carolina. And we had a little bit of time to get our rental car. Um, so we just let everyone else get off the plane, grabbed our luggage, and began to go down the aisle. And about halfway down the aisle, there still was one man blocking traffic. I couldn't get around him. He was an older man. When I say older, a little bit older than me, <laughs> probably in his 60s. And, and he was like taking his time, getting his bag off, off the rack and grabbing another duffel bag down below. And I thought, come on, dude, you've had all this time to get off the plane. I mean, we're patient, but to a point. Come on, let's pick it up, buddy. And then, I, then he leans over to get one more thing. I'm like, Here we go, some more. And I look over to see what he's grabbing. And he's grabbing two forearm crutches. And I said, sir, can I carry one of your bags for you? And I had to think how quickly my heart changed when I understood his dilemma. I mean, immediately, my heart softened toward him. And it made me think how often we, we get abrasive and we get impatient, and we have no clue what the other person is dealing with. We don't know that they just lost a child. 
We don't know that he just got laid off from his job. We have no clue what they're going through, but, but I'm being inconvenienced, and I'm a little upset right now. But take time. I believe that there are good-hearted people who believe that there are serious racial issues and inequalities in our culture, and they've experienced them. And I, and I believe equally that there are people who stand for patriotism and the sacrifices that, for the American flag and, and, they, and, and they're defending that, that, that responsibility to honor the flag. But here's where I think we've gone wrong. We're really good at stating our positions. We're not very good at listening to each other. And I think healing would come if we would take time to understand what the other person's going through. Because when you understand, then you know how to love that person. We are called to love. You know, I, I came across a passage that I think is an amazing passage. I actually really haven't taken time ever to look at this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Listen to these words. Paul writes to this church and says, Children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. Now, I, I just looked at that passage and said, Paul's seeing something pretty amazing here about maturity. I mean, in a relationship, it's the parents who save up and provide for the kids, not the other way around. He says, the parents who give of themselves. And Paul says, I not only will give you what I have, I will expend myself as well. I will lay my life down for you. Because that's what a mature person does. Maturity thinks less of self and more of others. In fact, here's a great definition of maturity. I put it in your bulletin. You're becoming mature when you think more of others than you think of yourself. When your conversation starts off with, but I want, but I would like, then you're the kid. Then you're the child. Because a parent takes care of the needs of the children. And you know who is the best parent? Jesus. You know why? Because he gave the most for his children. Jesus really is the epitome of faith and love. And and just remember, that's all that counts. Okay, one other part of this story. Paul says you have support for your growth, and it's your prayer army. In his letters to the churches in Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, he always talks about how he's praying for them. Wouldn't it be great to know that there's an apostle praying for you? All these churches must be like, man, it's so good to know. The apostle Paul, even though he's, he's been gone for years, still prays for us. In fact, you can read several. Uh, here's just a couple quick little, little comments. Romans, Romans chapter 1. Paul says, God is my witness, how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. Philippians. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. What I, what I don't think we appreciate is Paul was a great church planter, was a great teacher. Have you ever considered this? Paul was a phenomenal prayer warrior. That maybe the most significant work that he'd ever done was actually through intercessory prayer. Because sometimes Paul was locked up in prison. You know what he's doing? He's not only writing letters, he's praying. And here's what prayer does. Prayer can go to places you can never go. Prayer can reach people you will never see, never meet. Prayer can do for people what you could never do because here's what prayer does. It unleashes, it unleashes resources from heaven. It, it moves God's strong arm to do things that are impossible for you to do. And you know what's the beautiful part about, about when God answers prayer? Is guess who gets the glory? God does. It's not what you did. It's what he did. That's why, that's why little is known about Paul's prayer life or we don't talk about it because prayer seems so unglamorous. 
If you wrote a song, cut an album, wrote a book, led a crusade, man, you get your name put on a banner. You don't get it when you pray. And some of you know what it's like to have a prayer warrior on your behalf, a mother, an aunt, a father, a pastor, praying for you. That's why when Paul gets to the end of this book, after he talks about all the spiritual armor to put on, he says this in Ephesians 6, verse 18. He says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people because he knows one of the greatest weapons you have in your hand is the power of prayer. So I want to ask you a couple questions. Who's praying for you? I have a prayer army, a group of people. Every Friday or Saturday, I send a, a prayer list to them, and they pray for me. I don't, I don't believe I could be a pastor without that prayer army. Who, who are you being vulnerable with to let them know how they can pray for you? My second question is, and who are you praying for? Whose army are you part of? And I would encourage you, if you're not already, you should be regularly praying for your kids, for the leaders in your church, for government leaders, for many, many people that God calls us to pray for. Keep on praying for all God's people because your prayers make an impact. And I would challenge you dads who are of military background. You're used to being in the line of fire. You've been to Afghanistan, Iraq, and Pakistan, all these places. But I'm going to tell you this. The greatest battles you'll ever fight will be on your knees in prayer. So step up. Be a prayer warrior. Be part of God's prayer army. Because God wants us to grow. He wants the people around us to grow. And really, it's up to us. How far do you want to grow? How far do you want to grow? Are you content where you are? Or are there additional steps of faith? Are there greater sacrifices of love that God has for you? God is calling you not to stay where you are, but he saved you so that you would grow. Three weeks ago, I celebrated my 57th birthday. And our kids had us over for dinner because they wanted to give me a special gift. And I saw my grandson, Aiden, walk up and he handed me a box and it was a a box that held a picture frame. And I, oh, that's kind of cool. I wonder what picture they put in it. When I looked at the picture, I was stunned. I said, you're kidding. You've got to be kidding. Is this for real? It's a picture of a baby about the size of my thumb. It was their announcement to say, you're going to be a grandpa again. I was, I was blown away. I was moved by that because I've already been thinking about this little boy or little girl changing their diapers, giving horsey back rides, teaching them to ride a bicycle, playing catch with, watching them get baptized, graduating from high school, getting married. See, babies weren't given to stay as babies. They were given to grow. And I looked across the the room when when I got that picture, and I saw this glow of joy upon my son's face, the joy of a daddy. And it made me think of our Heavenly Father. See, the Bible says there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels anytime someone turns from their sins and gives their life to the Lord. It's joy in the presence of the angels. It's not the angels celebrating, though I'm sure they are. It's someone that's in the presence of the angels. Now, when I read the book of Revelation, in the presence of the angels, in very dead center, 
is the Father and the Son. I'm sure the Spirit's there with them, and they're celebrating. Nothing gives our Father greater joy than when someone turns from their sin and turns to Jesus.